This is Ergo. I'm Kiss, and we have a very special bonus episode for y'all today. We're really excited to bring you this audio from an online event that happened this past Saturday. It was put together by the Movement for Black Lives and the Rising Majority, both of which are national networks and collectives leading the fight for black lives in this moment and over the past few years. The event was called Making Meaning of This Moment, and it featured conversations and performances from Angela Davis, Jamila Woods, Natanya Lee of Left Roots, Timmy Rose, who's been on the show from Dissenters, Kayla Reed from Action St. Louis, Carissa Lewis from Movement for Black Lives, and Grace Martinez from United We Dream. It was a wonderful conversation about how do we make sense of what's been happening over the last week and how do we use it to galvanize the movement towards police abolition and liberation for black people in this country. They were nice enough to let us use the audio and share it with y'all. So here you go, a bonus episode making meaning of this moment. Enjoy. I first want to begin by calling out the names of those lives that have been taken from us. And that's how we have to talk about it. Lives that have been taken from us by police, by police violence and state violence. And that is the reason we are gathered here today. I wanna call out Brianna, Nina, Tony, Ahmad, George, and all of the other black people whose lives have been taken to, from us by state-sanctioned terrorism. We send love to you. We send love to your families. And we commit to being in this protracted struggle to honor you. We are in a pivotal moment right now. Black people and our accomplices are turning up across the country, demanding that we defund the police and instead invest in community health and wellness transformation. We are winning demands across local communities, the state, across the nation and globally, whether that be in Minneapolis or Louisville or Brunswick, Georgia, Tallahassee, Indianapolis, Madison, Wisconsin, or in your own hometown. You can find out more about the local fights and how to get involved by checking out um, www.infrabl.org. You can also follow the Rising Majority, and we'll make sure we plug those links in the chat um, and on those Facebook uh, social media for you all so you can stay um, connected to what's happening. In this time, we are also seeing an increase of police violence and vigilante violence that has been supported by Trump curfews sweeping the cities, and corporations capitalizing off of this moment without real structural change. Today's national call is about being able to put, being put on by the rising majority in the movement for Black Lives, is about the opportunity for us to sharpen our analysis about what this moment actually is, right? We cannot win unless we understand the problem we are trying to solve. And it's an opportunity for us to recommit to the struggle ahead towards abolition and liberation. But before we get to this amazing uh, panel, we have an incredible artist joining us, Jamila Woods, who is going to bless us, y'all. Indeed, this is a blessing, who is going to bless us with her art without um, further ado. Thank you. Thank you all for having me here. I'm really honored to be here. I wanted to open with kind of a mashup of two different songs. One's called Very Black and one's called Baldwin and it's inspired by the um, letter to his nephew in the fire next time. So thank you. Black is like the magic. The magic's like a spell. My brother went to heaven. The police going to, yeah, they're going to, hello, operator. Emergency hotline. If I say that I can't breathe, will I become a chalk line up to see the movie? Line up to see the act. 
The officers I scheme in to cover up their cover up there. Ask me no more questions. Tell me no more lies. Your serving and protecting is stealing babies' lives. I'm very black, 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 and send me back, back, back. You take my brother. Brother, brother, I fight back, back, back. I'm very black, black, black. I made a pack, pack, pack. You take my brother, brother, brother. I fight back, back, back. Double, double this and double, double that. Your trouble, trouble is I'm very, very black. Double, double this and double, double that. Your trouble, trouble is I'm very, very black. And that is all I, that is all I know. They don't know a thing about a story. Tell it wrong all the time. Don't know a thing about a glory. Wanna steal my baby shine. All my friends want to know why you ain't figured it out just yet. All my friends want to know why you ain't figured it out just yet. All my friends been reading the books by Morrison and West. All my friends been reading the books, reading the books you ain't read. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Somebody's daddy always laid out on the street. And for what? We on the street and for what? Your precious lethal fear. Your precious lethal fear. You don't know a thing about a story. Tell it wrong all the time. Don't know a thing about a glory. Wanna steal my baby shine. And that is all I, that is all I know. Thank you. That was absolutely incredible. And I still have chills from it. So now we're going to move into our incredible uh, roundtable of panelists. So I'm going to just give a very small introduction of the panelists and then we will get right into it. So we have us joining us today, Angela Davis, who's an author, a feminist, a scholar, and a longtime activist. We have Timmy Rose, the co-founder of the Dissenters, which is a national youth anti-militarist group. We have Kayla Reed, Action St. Louis, and the Electoral Justice Project with Movement for Black Lives, who was on the streets of Ferguson. We have Graisa Martinez, who's with United We Dream. And we have Antonia Lee joining us, the co-founder and leader of Left Roots, a people of color-led new left formation. So welcome panelists, we are very excited to have you all with us. So we will get right into the questions. So this is generally to all of you. How do you see and how do you name this amazing historical moment that marks the convergence of multiple crises? So we're dealing with the COVID outbreak and pandemic, Trump's nonsense, also known as his presidency, and the most widespread uprising against racial and economic injustice in over a half century. How do you see it and why is it so significant? You can start us off, Angela. Oh, do you want me to start off? Okay, thank you. Um, well, first of all, um, I'd like to really thank the 
rising majority and the movement for Black Lives for inviting me to participate in this uh, really important uh, discussion. Um, and to attempt to begin to respond to the first question, um, I would say that the confluence of the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, of course, the current presidency, uh, the incredible anti-racist feminist organizing over the last decade, especially since the Ferguson uprising. And then of course, the recent killings of uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, Tony McDade, and of course, George Floyd have, have created this unique conjuncture. Um, and I wanna emphasize the anti-racist organizing uh, that has happened over the recent period, even when it appeared that no one was listening outside of communities of color. This anti-racist organizing has made a major difference. And I emphasize this because we don't often have the opportunity to so dramatically witness the results of activist work, activist intellectual work that dramatically changes people's minds and, and begins to shift mainstream narratives within a very short period of time. Uh, uh, we're hearing within the mainstream now, comments about structural racism, systemic racism, institutional racism. Uh, um, we've also never experienced such massive sustained demonstrations uh, in places throughout the US, big cities as well as small towns. And at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that this um, awareness of racism is global. Uh, and so uh, our comrades and sisters and brothers in, in, uh, on the continent of Africa, uh, in South America, Brazil especially, I think it's important to point out uh, that Brazil suffers the very same problems that we do in this um, in this country, and oftentimes even more intensely, uh, 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 a young man by the name of João um, uh, Pedro was just recently killed by the police in, in Rio. 4,000 uh, people a, 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 a have, were killed by the Brazilian um, police, the military police, the local police, the state police, et cetera, last year. But finally, let me say that I think our role is to demonstrate the connections between global capitalism and globalized racism, um, racial capitalism from the era of slavery to the present. The pandemic is, is, is global. It's a product of global capitalism and the privatization of, of the healthcare system, which has uh, uh, caused people to recognize that the everyday racisms uh, have a devastating impact uh, on communities of color. Uh, and of course, um, the fact that we um, collectively witness uh, the last uh, um, nine minutes of the life of, of George uh, Floyd, uh, you know, served as a spark. But thank you very much uh, for the work that um, Movement for Black Lives and Rising Majority um, have done in order to uh, help uh, bring this new awareness, this new consciousness to a kind of maturity. Timmy? Thank you, Angela, for those remarks. Um, I would just uh, echo a lot of what um, Angela has already raised and thank you Rising Majority and the Movement for Black Lives for pulling together this uh, critical panel. Um, as Angela uh, mentioned, we are living through an incredibly powerful moment where folks are taking action all over the so-called US but all over the globe. Um, and these uprisings have completely thrown the status quo into question. Um, at the broadest levels, at all levels of government, the, the utterly failed response and lack thereof in terms of um, in, to COVID-19 um, has revealed that these politicians don't care about poor and working people. 
Um, they don't care about the black and brown people, especially as we know that COVID-19 is disproportionately killing black people. Um, our so-called political leaders know these disparities um, and they're willing to play politics with hundreds of thousands of people's lives. As it relates to the murder of George Floyd and the righteous uprisings that are happening all across the country, people are now deeply questioning, do police keep us safe? What is the role of policing? Are there alternatives? Um, for decades, black abolitionist organizers, many on this panel right here today, um, have been posing these same questions as well as the solutions. So the groundwork for many of the transformative and revolutionary demands that we're seeing right now and winning, uh, like demands to defund police, uh, to fund, to use those resources for life-affirming solutions, getting cops out of our schools, um, the groundwork for that was laid by revolutionary Black organizers like Angela and like the other my co-panelists on this panel, um, which you'll be hearing from more today. Uh, so I would just say that we're in this moment where the common sense is totally shifting and our role as organizers and non-Black accomplices like myself is really to, is to seize this opportunity to make the demands that we actually deserve and organize like hell to turn those demands into reality. Thank you. How about you, Kayla? Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Em, and thanks so much to the Movement for Black Lives and uh, the Rising Majority for having this call. You know, I think um, um, I heard the other day from Reverend Starsky Wilson a, a good kind of framing of this moment that Black people are dealing with two pandemics. One is the pandemic of 2019, which is COVID-19, and one is the pandemic of 1619, which is you know, the, the beginning of the manifestation of how white supremacy has devastated our people uh, in this country since its inception. Um, and I think right now we are watching the way in which racism and white supremacy has been um, kind of embedded into the institutions of this country be loud and unabashed and directly in the face um, of people every single day. Um, and we are watching a president empower white supremacy empower police to be brutal against protesters who are showing up and risking their lives in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic to fight for the soul and the future of this country, this democracy uh, in our communities. And so, you know, I think this moment really is um, a way to understand how these systems are interlocking um, to reference, you know, something I heard earlier from a comrade, Nikita, it really is about these interlocking systems of oppression and, and to know that George Floyd was killed by the police while surviving COVID-19 is an exact, you know, intersection of why we need to have a robust conversation on the economic impact on our communities, on the, the way that policing has devastated and continues to kill our folks um, and how this is attached to um, political power, we are watching in real time the president weaponize the military to stand against protesters who are simply um, fighting for in defense of black lives. And so I think, you know, this, this moment highlights just how deeply and how embedded white supremacy is at every single lever in every single institution. And it's, it's alive and well, and it's emboldened in this moment, and our people are responding to that. And I think to think back in 2014 uh, to Ferguson, you've seen a consistent organizing since 2014. The Ferguson uprising gave people uh, permission and emboldened people's ability to go into the streets, to not be afraid. And people have sustained that demand. People have sustained that action. People have organized that. People have debated those issues out loud. And I think that the potential for transformation um, at this point is, is, is very high, that we can get things done that we've never thought possible in our lifetimes. Uh, and that is because people are willing to sacrifice because we have to fight white supremacy uh, and understanding how that is connected to capitalism and how that is connected to the deep exploitation uh, and brutality against our folks on a daily basis. Yes, come through. I already feel the power on this call. Graisa, how do you understand this moment? Uh, first, I want to issue a salutation and gratitude for the thousands of people that are joining us in this call today. My name is Grace Martinez-Rosas. I'm undocumented, unafraid, queer, and unashamed. Um, and, you know, what I see in this moment is uh, I see ancestors. I see the blossoming of deep, deep organizing that our communities have built for centuries. I see 
the uprising in the streets as a convergence of the power and the love that organizers have poured into communities across the country and that we've built for generations. I, when I think about the civil rights movement, the Chicano movement, um, Occupy Wall Street, Undocumented and Unafraid, um, the call to abolishing ICE, all of those have been stepping points for particularly this moment. And every corner of this country is bearing witness to what a Black-led multiracial uprising looks and feels like that is flanked by those who believe in freedom, those who are restless like I am, those who know that freedom is coming. And in those streets, I see I see Carissa and Tanjiwe and Mo and Jessica Bird, um, Marcus, Abril, Christina, all of these organizers that have given of themselves to ensure that there are moments like this and that we're able to take hold of them. I see community meetings and the one-on-ones that we've had, the long nights of dancing and song and principal debate to think about where is it that we're going together? All of those moments of, of trust building, um, though they might have seemed small in that moment, have become now revolutionary. And it's important for people across the country to look at this moment with wonder. That is the incredible visibility that's not just happening here in the U.S. As Ms. Angela was saying, it's, it's global. Everywhere across the country, people are demanding a defunding of the police state, a de- uh, um like for black lives to be able to thrive because we know that when they do, all of us thrive. And so, you know, it's um, it's significant. This moment is significant for me. It's significant for us. It's significant for all of us because it is ours. We have built it. And I think about um, the words of, of Garvey when he said that we have a beautiful history and sisters and brothers, I tell you that together we are building a future that will truly astonish the world. And I think that COVID-19, I think that um, the way that immigrants are being treated in this country, the black lives taken from us every single day, those are also gonna be bear witness and uncover um, the possibilities and also um, the clear structural racism that we will defeat And I will be able to point back to this day, some of our ancestors will be able to point back to this day and say that people marked the future and that we knew we were going together um, into that future. So I'm honored to be on this call, honored to be with all of you um, and ready to go. And then Tanya, how do you understand this moment? Thanks, Em, and everyone and Rising Majority and Movement for Black Lives. I just want to say I'm here with just kind of a fierce fire in my belly for us all to get free and with some really deep humility, knowing that we are not, we are just one leg of a long struggle that our ancestors brought us here and we have legs to go. Um, and so I'm here both with that fire and with that humility. Um, I'm really glad that we're here talking about the big picture conditions that we're up against because, you know, in Left Roots, we know as as organizers, it's it's important to be thinkers and doers. And if we're going to be swinging, we need to know what are the best moves to be making, right? We need to understand our conditions to know what are the best moves to make in every moment. And I want to say that from my vantage point, as a longtime Black organizer, as a leftist um, for the last few decades, And um, as a comrade with so many people in the movement for Black Lives space, I mean, I think the main thing I want to convey or one of the key things is that we are clearly in a national uprising for sure, made possible by so many people on this call, um, on this panel. Um, But also, I'd say we are at a historic moment of rupture. And by rupture, I mean, it's the kind of systemic, chronic and also acute set of crises that have been accumulating and have recently intensified to the point where black people in particular, but millions of people um, have reached a breaking point. So this moment of rupture is really represent a pretty historic turning point for the country. And it represents this accumulation of on one hand, centuries of oppression and exploitation under racial capitalism, but also decades of sort of Uh, insufficiently spoken about suffering under neoliberalism and attacks from the right against our our victories from the 60s. And then years of our disgust at the brazenly misogynist and racist president in the White House, Trump, right? Proto-fascist in the, um, and then months of having to witness unnecessary loss of livelihoods and lives in this pandemic. 
And then after all of that, the brutally racist murder of George Floyd represents this flashpoint that expresses this long accumulated set of crises. And I think given the historic scale and depth of this crisis, this is more like 1932 and more like 1968 than in my lifetime, I think we will see more uprisings of different kinds. And I think we will see more repression. And I think black people will continue to lead as people who bear the brunt of so many working class black people who bear the brunt of so many of the um, for oppression in our in our society. But also, I think in this next period, we're going to see all kinds of uprisings um, from oppressed and working class people who are really suffering today. And it's going to be up to us to work together and figure out how to coordinate so we make the most of this moment. So it's a huge epic opening, biggest in my 30 years. Um, and I want to say with that it is not guaranteed. It is not a guaranteed at all that Black people or the left that we come out stronger, actually. It isn't guaranteed. Um, we have a lot of strength at our bat and we've got a lot of wisdom, but what we do right now to make the most of this moment is what's gonna set us on the path to liberation. Thank you. And so Angela Conrad, well, first let me thank you for just all the incredible work that you've done and continue to do to help our, our, our folks get free. And we appreciate you taking time to be with us. But I'm wondering if you could build a bit more on some of Antonia's remarks, which is really about this convergence of white supremacy, racial capitalism, patriarchy, and in particular, the role of police in this moment. Can you give a bit more analysis or help us sharpen our understanding of how these interlocking systems of oppression are especially important to understand as we curate our abolitionist dreams? Well, first of all, um, it's um, so wonderful to listen to, to all of you. Um, and what's, what I find most exciting about this moment is um, the way in which younger people are, um, are building you know, on the struggles that happened before and taking them so much further than any of us could have ever imagined. I feel really thankful to still be alive at this moment, to witness on behalf of you know, all of my comrades who have fallen, uh, uh, the, the, the ways in which you are all uh, uh, moving us uh, forward. Uh, and of course, many years ago, when we first began to talk about evolution, people thought we were absolutely out of our minds. Uh, what do you mean? What do you mean abolish uh, prisons? Uh, what are we going to do with you know all of the murderers and the rapists? Uh, you know what do you mean control the police? Uh, and of course the um, the whole demand for community control of the police has uh, moved uh, uh, toward um, a um, position of uh, questioning the necessity uh, for structures of policing that are so thoroughly saturated uh, with, with racism and, and, and capitalism. Um, um, and of course we still see that the immediate impulse is to ask the criminal justice uh, system, or I should say, I shouldn't say criminal justice system, I should say, um, the, well, whatever, the, the, the criminal system, the criminal legal system to treat cops like everyone else who commits crimes. Uh, um, but of course, we've been doing this for decades. When Whenever a police officer is arrested and tried or even convicted in some instances, the structures of policing remain as violent, as repressive, as racist, as misogynist as they were before. Um, um, when we when we look at the history of the prison system in this country, and I say this country because the U.S. has has offered incarceration uh, as uh, the dominant mode of punishment to the world. Uh, and whenever we look at the history of the prison system in this country, we realize that there always been called for reforms and reforms have been instituted, but the institution has become even more violent, even more repressive, even more racist. It has expanded. And 
Of course, one of the critical aspects of the prison industrial complex today is immigrant detention, uh, not only in the US, uh, uh, but in Europe, Australia, throughout the world. And, and, and this is why it's so important at this moment when we say abolish the police to also point out that we want to abolish ICE. Uh, um, so what if we reformulate the question uh, and, and ask not about making prisons more humane or, or policing uh, more effective, uh, but you know, what if we address the issues that are concealed by the presence of uh, these structures of, of incarceration and policing? What if we ask, what would our worlds have to look like if there were no such institutions? Uh, uh, what would our worlds have to look like if there were no prisons? What would they have to look like in order not to rely on racist structures of, of, of policing? Uh, we would need better schools. Uh, uh, we would have to remove cops from schools. As a matter of fact, I, I did a card, participated in a card demonstration yesterday that called for removing all police from the Oakland uh, school district. Uh, we would, we would, we would um, need better health care. Uh, we would have to deprivatize health care and housing and food. All of these simple issues. So, looking at these these issues through an abolitionist lens would also require us to use feminist approaches. Uh, and and so, so we like to say abolition feminist approaches because anti-racist, anti-capitalist feminism helps us to keep all of these issues in tension. And it, uh, th this approach warns against focusing myopically on one single institution. We can't uh, eradicate gender violence, which is of course the most pandemic violence in the world if we don't also move toward eradicating racism and economic injustices. So demands to defund the police, uh, which I think uh, uh, you referred to, uh, um, uh, Timmy, were our abolitionists. Get the police out of our, our schools. Uh, just as we use the call for decarceration as an abolitionist strategy, let's call, let's demand the shrinking of the police. Uh, but at the same time, we need to imagine new forms of security. What would security be like um, that is not based on violence? Uh, you know, what would security look like interrelated uh, uh, with uh, our, our needs for food and housing and healthcare and jobs and recreation and culture? And, and, and so forth. Uh, and I think that, that, that you all are the ones who are showing us that it is possible to bring all of these issues together in a way that helps to shift the, the, the popular narrative. So thank you very much. Thank you. So as Angela said, the need to be abolitionist and to be thinking about that across systems, to be thinking about abolitionist feminisms. I want to go to Kayla now, who is an abolitionist feminist, but also has been on the front line of an urban rebellion and an incredible leader. So Kayla, can you tell us about what are some of the lessons that we should be distilling and learning from the Ferguson uprising? Right. And can you tell us a little bit about as we take the fight across the country, what are some of the local demands that are coming up? Yeah, thank you, Em. And yes to everything that uh, Miss An Angela said. I am, you know, so there's so many lessons and that we're still learning the lessons. And so um, I really wanted to take time to I thought about this a lot this morning. I even called uh Barbara Ransby to just put to, to share my thoughts with someone before we got on this call. Because I think, you know, a lot of people look to Ferguson as an example. And there are so many lessons and there are so many things that we learned that I hope that people, there are so many, you know, I'll say it, there are so many things that we should have done better, we could have done differently. I should have, could have, would I wish. But, you know, in those lessons, we grow. 
And in those lessons, our movements learn. And, and we've gotten stronger from those lessons that we got to live through uh, a few years ago. Um, and so I've thought about it in five ways, uh, you know, lessons that I would share just from my perspective. Um, that this that this moment, this is a time for transformation. There are going to be people who want to give um, small reforms, a lot of voice. There are people who want to give um, incremental change, a lot of voice. But this is a moment for transformation. When people are taking to the streets, we must think about this as an opportunity to really uh, think beyond the institutions that we live in, dream, dream of something bigger, something freer, uh, something that takes care of our communities. Uh, and so I, I feel so grateful that on the lips of so many in this country right now are the words defund the police. Uh, and I want to lift up the words that we need to invest in our communities. Um, this is a time for transformation of self. When I was 24 in 2014, I was not someone striving to be an abolitionist feminist. I was a pharmacy technician who believed Mike Brown shouldn't have been killed. Uh, and so that, that journey of transformation starts inside. It starts with self. It starts with learning. It starts with finding a political home. Um, and it, it starts with sharpening that so that you can have a sharper analysis on what it takes to transform the society. Uh, and so take that time, find that political home, do that work. Uh, and dream big, right? Dream big. Two, our movements, they must engage in deep principle struggle and unity. There are going to be so many attempts to divide us right now. So many attempts to separate our fights. So many attempts to allow ego uh, to come into our movements. Um, and, and we have to know that that's coming and we have to fortify ourselves in our movements. We are in this together. And when we are separated, we can't move as, as strongly and united as we need to toward our North Star. Um, and, and we just have to keep that centered. There's so much trauma that comes with being on the ground in this moment. People are being beaten, people are being killed, people are being harassed, people are being stalked. Um, and, and that create that trauma can lead to division. And so we just have to know that that's coming and really fortify our movements, really invest in deep principled communication with each other because we know that we do this from a place of love and never lose sight of that love that we have for each other, that we have for our communities, that we want to see something better. Uh, we must protect ourselves and each other. Surveillance is real, y'all. Prosecution is real, y'all. Persecution is real, y'all. You know, people, people are, they know our Twitter handles, they know our faces, they will find out where we live, they will look for us, the police will follow us home. Right. They will they will kick in our doors. They will arrest our people um, in St. Louis. We've already seen arrests. I want to lift up Mike Avery, who was picked up by the FBI recently. Right. We can't get him home. I want to lift up Josh Williams, who has been in prison since 2015. Right. That we that we know all too real that this is happening and it will happen again. Right. Um, that our organizations must be in service of the work on the ground that there is a national conversation and that there is a lot of work happening uh, in so many localities right now, but we must be in service of the people who are putting their bodies on the line. Our work must do that. It must center that and must keep that um, a priority. And lastly, the fifth thing that I, that I wanted to mention is that we must center joy. This moment is going to be hard, y'all. And we have to find time to find joy. We have to fortify our spirits. We have, to, we have to love on each other because if we don't, this will tire us out. This will burn us out. People will go indoors and never come outside again. So we have to, we have to make sure that we find a way to center joy. Uh, and you know, I'm a local organizer um, and Action St. Louis is an abolitionist feminist organization. We are standing that up. Uh, we are fighting every day to close a jail here in St. Louis. We are fighting every day uh, for reparations in our community. And, and that work has persisted since 2014. Uh, and so there are so many demands um, to defund the police that's happening across uh, the country. And we are seeing that that is being taken seriously. In LA, Minneapolis, they're talking about dismantling the police department in Chicago and here in St. Louis. Uh, there is a demand to disarm decommission and dismiss. We need, we need, we need to make sure why do police officers, why are they carrying guns in our community? Why are they carrying guns in our schools? We need to ask these questions. We need to, we need to interrogate what has existed because it doesn't have to. Um, in St. Louis, we, we have a campaign to close the workhouse. It's a jail here. 
Uh, we are lifting that demand up right now because we don't need we don't need protesters or anyone from our community thrown into hellish facilities and kept on on high bills and can't get home to their families. Um, we need to free political prisoners, right? Those are the people who will be arrested during these uprisings and the ones that took place before. Um, and the ones who have been in you know prison far longer than I've been alive, they need to be free, they need to be home. Uh, and in St. Louis, so th these are the demands of St. Louis. And number five is that we need we need reparations for our communities. We know that in these neighborhoods where media wants to come in and talk about looting and violence, that there has been so much violence against these communities. There's been so much economic devastation in these communities uh, that the that communities have not been taken care of. We don't own these communities. And so we, we need reparations. Um, for the north side of St. Louis, for the south side of Chicago, we need reparations. And so we are deeply, you know, I just want to shout out Black Visions Collective, Song, um, the People's Budget, LA, Freedom Inc., so many organizations. Uh, and my last advice is to find, you know, find an organization, lift up those demands, but join that organization. Understand that right now we are in the streets and on top one what comes from the streets are powerful demands and those powerful de demands must become powerful campaigns. And they are only powerful when those people stick with those demands and stick with those campaigns and join those organizations. So there's work to be done now and there's work to be done in the future, but I believe that we will win. Yes, I too believe that we will win. Thank you, Kayla. So now Tanya, we're gonna shift over to you as an incredible mind with the black leftist um, politic, many people are feeling overwhelmed in this moment. Could you take just maybe two minutes to talk about what are some things that you're projecting? How would you understand where we are now, where we might be? Um, thanks, Em. I'm so moved by um, the wisdom that's already been shared, but there are just two things I really want to add to all the really key points that have been made. One is that given that this conjuncture is this really historic rupture, uh, this historic turning point, um, and that the this uprising and the pandemic um, are both exposing and intensifying the crises our folks were already um, experiencing, we're in a situation where two things are true, that we both can be facing a long authoritarian road ahead. Um, that it is possible that with the backlash, the consolidation of right-wing forces, um, that actually the, the right could really um, take, take even further power in this moment. And our approach moving forward has to take that into account. We cannot be in denial. Our ancestors would be upset with us would we to do that. And on the other hand, we need to just be as fierce and bold and brave as we can possibly be to step into this rupture a moment with knowing the possibility of getting us closer to liberation. That, but that doing so requires the second thing, to actually make the most of this uprising, which every liberation struggle has had a moment of uprising, but it has built upon it. We have to step into the reality that we have to, out of this uprising, in and through this uprising moment, we're going to need to increase our level of coordination, our level of organization, um, our commitment to balance urgent response with intentional and long-term strategy. We're going to have to do all those things and really be clear-eyed and grounded about both the threats and the seriousness of the threats and the most possible victory we could win and so that we can maybe see liberation in our lifetime. And if we don't do both, we're gonna make a lot of false starts and a lot of mistakes. We have to be able to hold both possibilities in our hands and move forward strategically together. Yes, and speaking of moving strategically, Grace, I'm wondering if you can just, for two minutes, talk about the necessity for solidarity in this time. So what does it mean if black and brown folks really come together? You know, I think that the question that we've been asking ourselves is like, what becomes more possible in a moment like this? And, you know, for me, um, hope is something that has been escaping a lot of us as we face like what's happening with COVID, what's happening in immigrant communities and the life, the black lives taken from us. And so that hope is reimagined when we see black and brown people marching together and working to overcome what is a taught white supremacy. And, you know, at United We Dream and at the Rising Majority, we work to keep it real. In real talk, we know that anti-Blackness and white supremacy is not only a phenomena that is limited to white people. 
We need to acknowledge and know that this is um, part of like what it means to live in Central and South America as a Mexican woman. I know that I have witnessed many a conversations where people talk about the color of it, their skin and people are ashamed about that, the colorism and that the idea that um, black lives are, are less, I think is something that is real in our communities and something that at United We Dream, we are working to undo every single day. And yet undocumented young people know that this moment is one where we need to show up in like radical solidarity. I know that this um, COVID-19 has, uh, I've heard many stories, one of an 18 year old undocumented young woman who from one day to another because of COVID became the only <laughs> breadwinner in their family. And she had to make a choice in the last couple of days about what do we do in this moment? How do we respond? And she and people from DreamHack Oklahoma, from people in Lucha in Arizona have responded by showing up because we know that even though ICE and CBP are in the midst of these marches and that every time that we step out, we risk um, death and deportation, we know that our, our um, future and our uh, guiding light is tied to one another, not only because the systems that seek to oppress us are intertwined because we know that the same ICE agents that are in our communities, the police agents that are in our homes are, are also connected for the struggle in Palestine, Palestinian freedom. Uh, but we know that it is also beyond more than that. It's about our collective vision. Um, and so I, I just want to say that, like, uh, and Tanya's word at the beginning about this moment and victory is, is not guaranteed to us. Um, but what we are doing at United We Dream and in people across the country is making our movement irresistible. A movement that ensures that undocumented young people are committed to defend black lives. We are committed to undo white supremacy in our homes, in our communities. We are committed to live and to thrive and survive in this moment, not only with our words and not only with uh, sharing stuff online. That is important and it's necessary, but it's also about our actions. And it means about organizing and welcoming new people into this work. So that's what is possible when we do um, the work of cross movement building. And you know, I'm just honored to be part of this conversation and be able to be part of developing a new vision um, and taking the leap together. Thank you so much. So comrades on the line, uh, the panel has been so powerful. Um, we're going to make sure that people are able to get their remarks in, which means we are asking you to stay with us an additional five to 10 minutes um, past the, in my time, it would be past one o'clock. Um, so we may go over another five to 10 minutes, um, but that speaks to the power of the remarks here. So Timmy, if you could just talk a little bit about, right, why is it then, given everything shared, why must we be fighting to defund the policing institutions and instead reinvest into community power. Thanks, Em. Um, well, I'll start just by re-uplifting something that Angela mentioned earlier in this conversation is that the fight against police violence and the struggle against capitalism is a, is a global one. It's always been a global one, which is to say that there is not a plot of land a farmer, a peasant, or village around, all over the globe that is untouched by global capitalism. And so in the same way that we've been, we've been learning how police, the real role of police is to protect capital inside our borders, we must put that same analysis towards the US military, which is to protect our capital interests abroad through the main, maintenance and extractive um, oil and, and maintenance of cheap goods throughout the world, um, that the U.S. military also serves these similar interests of protecting capital. The state's response to the uprising across the country, um, you, you know, we see the National Guard and the federal military units being deployed to support police. Um, that's given a lot of people who are unfamiliar what what a U.S. military invasion and an occupation can look, what looks like in other countries as well as the type of organized violence that black and indigenous folks have been have been and telling us about and, and experiencing since it's this country's colonial founding. Um, so one, one of the clearest connections for our work at the centers right now, which has been made abundantly clear by the black led demands to defund police is that police budgets can take up to half of the municipal budgets of many US cities, which mirrors 
the federal prioritization of the military, which takes up over half of the discretionary budget allocated by Congress, while so many of our social needs go unmet? How is it that we can continue to spend billions, billions of dollars on the military while our people are starving, without jobs, without health care, without access to adequate public schools, and the, and the list just goes on? So in the same way that we are mobilizing to defund the police, um, we must also be demanding to defund the military. Um, and let's not get tricked by these video ops and these photo ops of taking a knees. We don't want knees. We want to defund your institution. Um, so to more tangibly what this work has looked like for us at the centers, including other orgs like the National Priorities Project, Poor People's Campaign, Institute for Policy Studies, we're calling for the cutting of $350 billion from the military budget to fund other priorities that actually keep us safe. Only one third of the federal discretionary spending is available for housing um, and homeless assistance, public health and medical research, public education, only one third of that. Um, and this, that, the violence of that, the violence of those priorities um, is, is also reflected in the fact that some of the best supported public jobs programs are, uh, are available in so, in so many communities through the police and military forces that, are, are, that folks are being taking up, um, taking these jobs with the police and military forces. So in the context of both mass unemployment in this current moment and defunding local police and the military, it makes sense, it makes complete sense to be talking about shifting our resources to create massive numbers of publicly funded local and federal jobs um, and you know, funding pro uh, pro projects like for education and health through um, demands like the Green New Deal, for example, and thinking about what a just transition actually looks like. Um, I'll just, uh, I'll end by saying that, you know, my mother is a Vietnamese immigrant who immigrated to the city of Chicago seeking better opportunities after living her entire childhood in the midst of the US colonial war in Vietnam. My story is not unique. And there's a lot of young people of my generation, um, children of immigrants from around the world living here in this place we call the United States. Um, and, and we live here in the, in the heart of this American empire and are benefiting from what some uh, 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 activist Mimi Wen calls the gift of freedom. Right? But we have to understand that this so-called freedom is really just the freedom to participate in the racist capitalist economy that Angela has outlined and that we are all resisting when we are taking up action against police and the military. Um, it's just that, that to participate in this project is to participate in an economy that was only made possible by chattel slavery. It was only made that it comes at the expense of poor black people who've been systematically and historically barred from freedom. Um, and again, this brings us back to the point that for dissenters, fighting to end militarism has always been a fight about ending policing and the domestic prison system that is connected to. Um, dissenters, as I mentioned earlier, is a new youth POC-led anti-militarist effort that seeks to reclaim our resources from the war industry and reinvest those resources into life-giving institutions. Thank you, Timmy. And now, Angela, building off of the words or pulling from the words of Arundhati, Arundhati Roy, a radical Indian writer who says that pandemics can be portals. Can you just for one minute or two, tell us what we might be on the portal of? Okay, that's a challenge, uh, but uh, um, thank you for um, um, introducing the metaphor that Arundhati uh, Roy has given us uh, about this, this moment. Uh, um, I suppose, you know, I would say that um, we are in the midst uh, at this moment of the most intense expression of uh, anti-racist collective sentiment this country has ever seen. Uh, and we've seen 11 days of massive demonstrations and, 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 and marches uh, uh, of all kinds. Uh, um, but this will pass. 
the demonstrations will not continue forever. And I think it's, it's, it's our responsibility as, um, as organizers and activists to uh, consider how we attempt to bring those who have uh, um, felt that participating in the demonstrations is a first step that they can take to speak out against the centuries old systems of racism in this country. A lot of new people are out there. Um, I know my niece, uh, uh, whom I love, but she's been, you know, pretty much anti-political, uh, apolitical, and she just recently wrote a letter to uh, me and my siblings, uh, thanking us for the work that we did. And now she's out there in the demonstrations. Uh, so the question is going to be what we do in the aftermath, how we. Um, take advantage of, of, of this moment. Because as we all know, the real work, uh, no matter how dramatic the demonstrations may be, the real work is work that um, is not recorded on video. It's not on the television scenes. Uh, it's the, the work that all of you have been doing, uh, the day-to-day um, you know, organizing and, and consciousness raising. Uh, and so the question is, you know, how we move uh, from this moment to the next. And I, you know, I, I, I always like to point out that, that art and culture play a really important role in shifting consciousness. Uh, and, 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 and musicians uh, who have... Um, um, have helped to globalize uh, this anti-racist consciousness, you know, have to be acknowledged. Uh, um, Cecile McLaurin-Salvon is, uh, you know, posting a new project that's called Yoke uh, on um, Facebook today. Uh, so I would urge everyone to look at that. And also Terry Lynn Carrington, the amazing jazz drummer, has a, a new album that is really the soundtrack of this moment. Uh, uh, and it's called uh, The Waiting Game by uh, Terry Lynn Carrington and Social Science. I want to just you know, plug those two things. But uh, I suppose I would say that we have to prepare ourselves um, for organizing that is as intense as, uh, as these ex uh, ex uh, collective uh, demonstrations um, have been. And finally, I know that None of us have talked about the upcoming elections. And, you know, with uh, the Democratic candidate being who he is, uh, I don't think that there's much inclination, uh, uh, you know, towards that discussion, but we have, to, we have to have that discussion. You know, we have to talk about, uh, you know, how to utilize electoral politics in a way that will help us expand the arenas for our organizing. So it's not about electing somebody who we think is going to represent us. It's about electing someone who, on whom we can place the kind of pressure that will expand our, the arena of radical politics. Uh, and um, so I'm looking to you all for leadership on that. Uh, uh, and again, I, I, I thank you very much. I've learned a great deal from this conversation and I continue to learn from the younger generations of, of, of activists who are making all of this possible and allowing us to really um, imagine what, as Nina Simone said, what, what it might uh, feel like to be free. Thank you, Comrade Angela. So comrades on the line, stay with us about another 10 minutes as we uh, build on what Comrade Angela suggested, which is we have to talk about the continued work. And so I'm gonna pass it to uh, one of my InfraBL and Rising Majority comrades, Carissa Lewis, who will talk about what are the next steps in the work. Uh, beautiful, thank you, Em. Um, thank you all. I'm Carissa, the National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives. We're an ecosystem of 150 Black-led organizations across the country. Uh, it's an honor to be on this call with folks that I personally look to to help sharpen my thinking uh, and help me make sense of the world. 
Uh, I first want to affirm all of the really beautiful ways that folks have been taking action across the street. Um, and I want to be clear that we are staying in these streets, whether digital or physical, until our demands are met, um, until we def defund the police, and until we invest in our communities. Uh, so we will be launching in partnership with Black organizations across the country, a national campaign to defund the police. Um, and invest in our communities. We know that organizations across the country have already been inside of this work, and we want to move in alignment with those uh, organizations. Part of how that will be actualized is we'll be launching Freedom Summer in a couple of cities across the country. So check out our social platforms for that. Um, and we want to collectively vision what a world without policing is. As Angela named, Artists and creatives have a real role to play in helping us see and dream what the next world will be. Um, and so we're dropping an invitation to creatives to submit works that help to illustrate what a world without policing looks like, sounds like, feels like. Uh, so again, you can check our platforms for that. Um, and then concretely, what you can do this week um, to remain in defense of Black lives you can take action today by signing the pledge, which can be found at www.defendingblacklives.org. Uh, you can continue to take actions in your community. We developed a set of um, uh, proposed actions that live inside of our week of action. Folks can be utilizing those throughout the week. Um, and we are also at, at our website, www.m4bl.org. Um, we're also, what I'm really excited about, uh, calling for a nationwide digital uprising next Friday to call for the defunding of police, but also, as many folks have illustrated, the need for a divestment from the ways in which white supremacy and racial capitalism deeply impacts our lives. And so if you're trying to get down with the digital uprising, please take out your phones right now, text UPRISING, to 90975 to receive next steps on what that will look like. Again, text UPRISING to 90975 to receive your next steps around the National Digital Uprising on Friday of next week. Thanks. And we still have Jamila Woods with us who will close us out with another offering of her incredible art. Thank you so much, Jamila. Um, this has been a really amazing conversation, uh, and I thank Barbara Ransby for inviting me to be a part of it, and it's an honor to hear from all of you, and um, this next song is inspired, I wrote it after um, a Black woman in Chicago was killed by an off-duty police officer, her name was Rakia Boyd. And there was a lot of organizing that happened after the police officer, Dante Servin, got acquitted. And it was kind of my introduction to a lot of organizing spaces. And I was really inspired by the Black women in those spaces who were um, really leading the movement and just thinking about Black women historically in my life and historically who have um, really been an inspiration. Um, including Angela Davis. So um, thank you. And it's called Black Girl Soldier. See, she's telepathic. Call it Black Girl Magic. Yeah, she scares the government. Deja vu a tubman. We gon' miss him by the hundreds. Ain't nobody checking for us. Ain't nobody checking for us. The camera loves us, Oscar doesn't. Ain't nobody checking for us. They want us in the kitchen. Kill our sons with lynchings. We get loud about it. Oh, now we're the bitches. Look at what they did to my sister last century, last week. They put her body in a jar, then forget her. They love how it repeats. Look at what they did to my sister last century, last week. They make her hate her own skin, treat her like a sin. Oh, why? Why? But what they don't understand, see what they don't understand is 
Yeah, what they don't understand. See, what they don't understand is she's telepathic. Call it black or magic. Yeah, she scares the government. Deja vu a tubman. And she, 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 she don't give a yeah, 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 she don't give up. She da 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 don't give up. Na 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 na, she don't give up. Uh. Rosa was a freedom fighter and she taught us how to fight. Ella was a freedom fighter and she taught us how to fight. Ada was a freedom fighter and she taught us how to fight. Sojourner was a freedom fighter and she taught us how to fight. Audrey was a freedom fighter, she taught us how to fight. Marsha was a freedom fighter, she taught us how to fight. Asata is a freedom fighter. She taught us how to fight. Angela is a freedom fighter. She taught us how to fight. And what they don't understand, see what they don't understand is, yeah, what they don't understand, see what they don't understand is she's telepathic. Call it black girl magic. Yeah, she scares the government. Deja vu a tubman. And she, 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 she don't give up. Yeah, 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 she don't give up. She da 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 don't give up. Na, 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 give up. Uh. Thank you. Thank you, love and power, y'all. What's up, Kiss? I want you to meet my friend Miriam here. Hey, Miriam. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Miriam is my oldest friend in the world. The whole world. And she is a devoted podcast listener. Are you? I am. Oh, well, that's love. I don't even just, I don't mean our podcast. I just mean podcasts in general. Okay. I love podcasts. How, how do you usually find your podcast? What do you listen to them on? <sighs> the iTunes mm. app. Yeah, I know. Very basic. You're not thrilled with it? It isn't the best. Well, the good news is we actually have a recommendation for you. Oh, yeah? Well, Ergo is sponsored by Overcast. It's an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Man, it's for the people. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it free in the App Store where you get all the other things. That yeah. You, you going to check it out? Sounds amazing. Cool. We won you over. Look how effective this ad is. <sighs> Yeah. Pay, pay us more money, folks. <laughs> that's that's advertising in action. You see? Works. See, that's how good we are at selling things. We're doing this. Hey, yo, Harold, hit me up, man. I am an advocate and I can market your stuff because look how great we just marketed Overcast. We just gave an ad for them and an ad for us. I think it's time to get the fuck out of here. Let's do it.